Side Hustle Show 331, a look inside a six-figure online business, including what's working now and what's not worth your time. What's up? What's up? Nick Loper here. Welcome to the Side Hustle Show, because your nine to five may make you a living, but your five to nine makes you alive. A few years ago, a side hustler named Brock McGough reached out to me with a guest post pitch, which detailed how he was making at that time, $4,000 a month from his blog about men's fashion on the side from his day job. Well, fast forward to today, and Brock has turned themodestman.com into his full-time focus, into a six-figure income, and into something of a new media empire that expands well beyond the blog itself. I'm excited to dive into Brock's story, and when you stick around in this episode, you'll hear how he generates content ideas, how the business makes money, and where he's focusing his energy for the best results. And if you don't have a website of your own yet, an online home base, my free video series at sidehustlewebsite.com will help you get up and running quickly and affordably. Notes and links for this episode, plus the free downloadable PDF highlight reel with all of Brock's top tips from the call are at sidehustlenation.com slash Brock, B-R-O-C-K. Now, as the CEO of your own life, you know that busy, while a badge of honor for some, doesn't always equal effective. I've been on something of a personal mission of late to be less busy, but more effective. One tool that helps me do that is our sponsor, FreshBooks.com. FreshBooks is the number one invoicing and accounting software designed specifically for side hustlers, freelancers, and consultants. Trusted by 24 million customers, myself included, this is the service I use when I need to invoice clients or advertisers, and I've been a customer for years. Side Hustle Show listeners can try it free for 30 days. There's no catch, no credit card required. Visit freshbooks.com slash side hustle and enter the Side Hustle Show in the How Did You Hear About Us section to get started today. I'll be back with my top takeaways from this call with Brock after the interview. Ready? Let's do it. Around that time... I'm sure like a lot of your listeners, I read 4-Hour Workweek and kind of opened my eyes to the idea of like passive income and location independence. And I got deep into the world of affiliate marketing and building niche websites and learning about WordPress and SEO. And I got really, really obsessed with SEO and, and just figuring out how, how Google works. I had a few sites and mostly like Amazon affiliate niche sites, I would say. Nothing I was like super passionate about purely just like trying to learn and also make money. As you know, it's, it's hard to grind it out when, <laughs> when you don't really care about the content you're putting out there and stuff. Do you still have those sites? No, no. I've since kind of just let all of that expire. I did hold on to them for a few years, but no, not anymore. Did any of them ever make you any money or was it just not worth the effort that you were putting into it? Yeah, I mean, I'd say I got my income from those sites up to about five $600 a month when I was working this job and I was feeling pretty good about that, actually. And it was a great way to learn about WordPress and Amazon Associates and SEO. But then this like algorithm changed. I can't remember which one it was, Penguin or Panda, one of those major Google changes. And my site's just all tanked because I was doing like all this crazy SEO stuff. So I kind of thought, I don't want to build, I don't want to have 50 sites or 100 sites. I want to have like one that I really care about. And around that time, I was also kind of getting into like menswear and style and and trying to improve the way I dressed. So those interests kind of converged with The Modest Man, which I actually just called Short Man Style at first. I had that URL and then I ended up rebranding like a month later. So yeah, it was was kind of the first site that I built that I say I was really passionate about the subject matter. Yeah, very cool. What did that look like in the early days as far as getting the site built and off the ground and creating content? As far as getting the site built, I mean, I just used like a StudioPress Genesis template. So it was like a really basic WordPress site hosted on Bluehost for like five bucks a month. And I was mostly just writing back then. So very little in terms of like media, like photos or no video. I was just kind of writing about reviewing stuff that I owned. Like if I got a pair of chinos from Banana Republic, I would write a review. And I was just kind of like documenting the stuff that I was learning about trying to be a well-dressed young professional but also being five, six in shoes and 120 pounds soaking wet. And I kind of figured, yeah, I, mean, I was like, I was, I'm a small guy. And, and I kind of figured if I was dealing with not being able to find clothes that fit and whatnot, 
there was probably other guys out there dealing with the same stuff. Sure. Was that was that the extent of the keyword research? So coming from the the niche site background where it's like all about the keyword research, was there any market validation before diving into this? Or was it just, hey, this is something that I'm interested in. Let's see if it'll work. So I, I did a little bit of keyword research and I noticed that one advantage of having like a body type specific niche in the men's style world, because there were there were a lot of style blogs back then. And this was like pre-Instagram. There were YouTube channels, but mostly people blogging about men's style. And I noticed that you could take almost any topic, like say like how to wear jeans or where to where to buy jeans, and you could add for short men at the end of it. And it would shrink the search volume, but it also become like much, much less competitive. And so that was that was kind of my strategy is like look look what other blogs are doing and kind of find these popular topics and then just add that qualifier and then address it from from the angle of the the shorter man. Okay, I like that. I kind of call that the sniper approach. Is like I don't want all this traffic. I just want this little sliver that's most relevant to, to me. And it's interesting that people were actually searching for it because we talked to April Whitney a few months ago from Smalletics, which she calls petite fitness. And in her niche, nobody was looking for like workouts for short girls, but it was something that once they found it on Instagram, in her case, it resonated with them. So you had the advantage of people were actually looking for this stuff. It was just a matter of getting in front of them, creating that content. Yeah. And I think that maybe it's different in different industries, but this is something that a lot of guys might not talk about. They might not ask their friends about, but they're Googling it. And it was relatively easy to be the site that showed up for those search terms because really no one else was covering it. Now, there was one other site back then. Before I started, I found this site because I, I was I was one of those guys. I was like, hey, where do I shop? My pants are too long. What do I do? And there was this one other style blog focusing on shorter men and it actually went dark. They stopped posting. I tried to get in touch with the guy and even offered to buy the site and they ended up going offline. And so that's, that's actually why I started to like, sort of like carry the torch, you know? Okay, okay. What was the original domain? Short man style. Okay, now that seems more keyword focused. If, if it's like, okay, keyword search term for short guys or for short men, having that short word in the URL seemed like that would help. So why the rebrand to the modest man? I think it helped more have, having those keywords in your domain a few years ago. I think it doesn't matter as much now. And, and long term, if, if you kind of look at the, the biggest sites on the internet, they're not too concerned about that those like exact match domains anymore. I ended up changing it because the topic of height is sensitive and a lot of guys don't want to be described as short or they don't want to think of themselves like that. And so I kind of try to think what's a less obvious way to say this. And so the phrase that I'd been using was was man of modest height or of modest stature and so the modest man was what I came up with. Yeah. I like it. Well, I like the alliteration and obviously that's worked well for you. So were these product review type of posts getting traction, getting traffic for you? Or what was what was that process like? Where if you look at the analytics and you're like, yes, I got five visitors today. <laughs> they did okay. The first post that got a lot of traffic was called the top 50 blogs every man should know about, or every man should read. And it's actually still one of the highest traffic pages on the site. And Basically, I was reading all these sites and I wanted to make like an epic list of men's targeted blogs because I, because I think guys, especially back then, were kind of sick of like the GQs and the Esquires of the world. And there were all these awesome smaller sites that I was enjoying. And so I wanted to get that out there. That was also kind of the first piece of like pillar content or like ultimate guide type content that I put out. And it did really, really well. So for a long time, it was like, what showed up if you Googled blogs for men for years. So that, that was the first piece that really got a lot of traffic. Okay. And I imagine you're sending a bunch of traffic to these other blogs. So they, so they love you. They, you show up in their analytics like, hey, who's this Brock guy? Who's this modest man guy who's sending me all this traffic? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely made a lot of friends with that one. And then also when marketers or like PR companies or brands would Google blogs for men looking for people to work with, I would come up with this because the list was on my site. And so, of course, they'd contact me. And so I think that post also helped me get some of my first brand deals. Oh, okay. Very cool. Yeah, I like that. And, and it's kind of, a, that's an interesting one. It's outside of the traditional or outside of the, outside of the niche in a way where it's surprising to see on a fashion site because it's like a little bit broader than that, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, totally. But you know, I think the thing is when when you have like a really specific niche at first, it, it helps you stand out a little bit and and go after some of those like lower competition terms. But once you have a little bit of do- domain authority and a little bit of an audience, you can go after bigger terms. I really like the strategy of like niching down at the beginning, and then once you're a decent presence, I guess, on the internet, you can totally go after some of those bigger terms like blogs for men or best watch or like some of those bigger, more competitive search uh, terms. I've got an article for you if this one isn't already written. I actually did Google this the other day. It was like baseball hats for small heads. Cause I need, I need to like shop in the kids section. Like my, <laughs> my head is microscopic and everything I try on is too big. It hits me in the ears and it hurts and stuff. So me too. Me too, man. <laughs> I need you to write that article, actually. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll have to outsource that part. Any, anything else that was working in the early days to get an initial foothold in, in Google and get some eyeballs to the site? Yeah, the, the other thing that really worked and still works is just guest blogging. And I think the term guest blogging has, has been really, uh, the process has been abused. You know, So now when people think of guest posts, they're like, oh yeah, I get a million likes, people trying to get links from my website, basically. And unfortunately, that's kind of what guest blogging has become. But the idea of writing for someone else's site, I think is really powerful. And I got my first big waves of like referral traffic and my first few really high quality backlinks from just reaching out to other sites establishing relationships, and then eventually asking if I could write for them. What type of posts did well in those outreach pitches? Well, the cool thing about having a niche, so for me, you know, style for shorter men, is you can always write that article for everybody else. So if there's 10,000 more like generic men style websites, they all want at least one article on style for shorter men. And I'm the guy to write it, you know, because I'm the only blog on the internet that's talking about it. So usually when I would reach out to these people, and this was before I had any sort of reputation, I would pitch that idea. I'd say, hey, you know, let me write an article, some tips for for your shorter readers. And then eventually when I became known for that, people would reach out to me asking for that sort of content. Oh, okay. Very cool. Were those author links on those guest posts, were they going back to a specific landing page on your site or was it just a generic kind of homepage link? It was just generic. I mean, if I could, I would put a link in the article, like a good link, you know, an anchor text link to a specific blog post where it made sense. But really, if you have the opportunity to write for like a more established site than yours, let them do whatever they want. Like if they want to give you one one link to your homepage in, in the author bio, that's fine. If you can get more than that, that's great too. Yeah, everything, like you said, it's going to help that domain authority and kind of frees you up to write the content that you want to create and rank for it a little bit more easily because of those inbound links. If you travel a lot for work or for vacation, you might be familiar with that feeling you get knowing you're leaving your space unused for long periods of time and you're still paying for that privilege. But hosting on Airbnb means you don't have to leave your home sitting empty when you're away. Being an Airbnb host isn't just a way to earn some extra cash. It's a chance to share your space and make a guest's vacation all the more memorable. You might be thinking, eh, maybe my place isn't the right fit, but don't write it off just yet. Your potential Airbnb might be right in front of you. Whether it's a spare room or even your entire home, there's an opportunity waiting. Airbnb turns your home into a practical and even profitable venture. We just got back from a family trip to Hawaii where we stayed in a great Airbnb, but our place back home could have been a highlight to somebody else's travels, and we could have used the extra cash to help pay for the trip. So if you're curious about hosting on Airbnb, find out how much your space could be worth by visiting airbnb.com slash host. Once again, that's airbnb.com slash host. When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search and hit the ground running with your new hire. But what if you could get rid of the search part and just get matched with qualified candidates? Well, now you can with our sponsor, Indeed. It's simple. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. The matching and hiring platform is trusted by over 3.5 million businesses worldwide to connect with great talent faster. And 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. For my next hire, I'm using Indeed to tap into a talent pool of 350 million unique monthly visitors. And what else is cool is Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets. 
And how about this? Side Hustle Show listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash side hustle show. Just go to indeed.com slash side hustle show right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash side hustle show. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Okay, so the guest blogging stuff, anything else? I would just say too that some of those first sites that I wrote for, the, the guys that run those sites are like some of my best friends now. So I think just kind of like putting the time to sort of show show the people in your niche that you're in it for the long term, you're in it for the right reasons, makes sense. Because I think people that have websites are just hit up all the time for people just looking for something, like looking for a backlink or looking for traffic. I think if you do it the right way, not only can it help your business, but you can also make some friends. Well, absolutely. It was a guest post that you wrote for Side Hustle Nation, I want to say 2014, 2015, early on, that put you on my radar. And it was not related to men's fashion at all. It was related to, hey, here's how I'm building this blog as a side hustle. I had this wild and crazy idea to post an income report on my fashion blog, and here's the reaction that it got. Here's how the site makes money. Here's my linking strategy. It was a really interesting thing. It did really well. So that was guest blogging both inside the niche and, and kind of outside, or at least on the shoulder of it. Totally, yeah. And that, that's a great point. It's like you don't have to just stick with your niche. I've been fortunate to, to write that article for you and, and other sites that talk about like the business of, of blogging. I've written for even like a couple pieces about like fitness and martial arts and just like stuff that's like kind of outside of my wheelhouse, but it's still something that I can write about. And so I think you can definitely look at those sort of related niches and, and don't feel like you have to just stick with your one topic. I remember at that time, the site was making money in a handful of different ways. You had your affiliate links to the different products that you were talking about, often through Amazon, but through other stores as well. You had some display ads on the site, and then you had your own products that you created, like your own style guide type of products. What was the first thing that you did to make money from the site? The first thing was definitely affiliate links. So using the Amazon Associates program and other programs that are sort of like a low barrier to entry, like don't have like a traffic minimum and pretty much anybody can apply and get accepted. I think that's a really good way to monetize the site. Where certain ad networks like AdThrive or Media.net, I think is another one that's been mentioned recently, is like you have to have a certain traffic threshold to get on their network. Right. So yeah, so even if you just look at display ads, there's like tiers of display advertising. Almost anybody can put Google ads on their website. That's like bottom of the barrel in terms of RPMs, you know, revenue. And then once you get more traffic, you have access to these better display ads, managed display ads from companies like AdThrive or Media.net or Mediavine. So once I got over 100,000 views a month, then I moved to AdThrive, which was like, for me, really eye-opening. I, I didn't know you could make that much from just display ads. So you kind of have access to better better revenue streams as you grow. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Tell me about creating your own products and how you promoted those to, to visitors. So I created uh, an ebook all about Style for the Shorter Man. It was kind of just like all my best content in a nice package. For a while, I was really wanting to, to sell like digital products, maybe even courses, and have that be like my main source of revenue. And I think it's possible, but I think it's also a little hard in the men's style world because, first of all, there's so much good free content out there, especially with YouTube now. There's just you, you can really find what you need mostly for free. And it's also like style is it's a problem for guys, but it's not like a burning problem. It's related to burning problems, like finding romance. <laughs> That's a burning problem, right? And dressing well might help with that, but it's not the same as selling a product like teaching people how to make money or like get in shape. So it's just a little, it's a tough sell. So that was a little bit harder to promote. And and I'm looking at your income chart, even from last year, it's still a piece of the pie, but it's a really small sliver of the pie. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's still there and I like it because it's totally passive, but it's just not like a huge part of the business. And for my niche, I don't really know if it makes sense to really focus on that when other revenue streams are, so much more lucrative. Okay. So there was the the affiliate stuff, the display ads, a little bit from your own products, but saying, hey, 
after creating it and, and marketing that, eh, you know, that's not where the bulk of the revenue is going to come from. or does not resonating super well with the audience. What else is going on on the monetization side? The other big development was starting to work with brands or doing paid sponsorships. And this was another kind of like eye-opening moment. I remember the first time a brand reached out and offered to send free samples. That was like kind of like a milestone. And then the first time a brand offered to pay to be featured in a blog post, that was kind of like another milestone. Now with with Instagram and YouTube, companies are really putting a lot more into so-called influencer marketing. It's not as passive, you know, because you, you are doing the work, you're creating the content, but it's highly leveraged and that you could, once you have an audience, you can really charge a premium, you know, to expose a brand to your audience. Was there a minimum traffic or traction that you had when those people first started reaching out? Hey, can we send you a free pair of pants or something like that? You know, for for free product, it's pretty low. I mean, I'd say if you have a few thousand subscribers on YouTube and 10 to 25,000 visits a month on your website, you're probably going to get hit up a lot from brands wanting to send stuff and kind of just hoping for exposure. In terms of like paid sponsorships, I'd say anywhere in the like 50,000 plus subscribers on YouTube and maybe 50,000 plus like uniques to your website, you can start working with brands on a paid basis. Same with Instagram. Like if you have a decent Instagram following, a lot of brands are putting money into that. You have to do it the right way. You know, like you really have to be disciplined about keeping your the trust of your audience like top of mind and like not working with every brand that comes your way and being able to say no to opportunities if if you think it's not a good fit. So I try to take a quality over quantity approach. And for that reason, I, you know, I, I try to charge enough that it makes sense and that I can actually spend some time creating quality content for the brand. Yeah. Yeah, I'm curious how that conversation goes. Is it just the wild, wild west as far as here are my rates or do you let them name a price first or how does it typically go? It is totally the wild, wild west right now. And it feels like very unregulated. Like everybody has different prices. Every brand wants different things. The the important thing is like make sure you guys are on the same page in terms of expectations because like some brands... Say a brand reaches out and they say, how much do you charge for a video? And you say $5,000. A lot of brands like Fortune 500 companies, they're like, sure. And they're not even, they might give you a tracking link. They might not. Maybe they're just looking for branding and like exposure. But if it's a small company, like a $5 million company, they need to get their money back. They're not going to work with you again if they don't see traffic and sales from that video. So I think you got to know that and, and you got to be able to deliver what they want. Okay. Yeah. Managing expectations and, and almost sounds like pricing accordingly based on what you can guess about the company and its budget. So usually they're, they're going to ask you for your rates. And so you should have a rate sheet. It doesn't have to be like a publicly available media kit or anything, but you should have, I just keep like in my notes app, my current rates. So I'll kind of base it off that. And, and some companies, they come to you and they have like a really specific ask. They're like, hey, we want two Instagram stories with swipe up, one post, and like an article that's that's live for at least a year. And so I'll kind of go, I'll go to my my notes app and look at my rates and say, okay, here's what I would charge for that package. A lot of brands are fine with whatever you would charge, and in which case you should have charged more. <laughs> <laughs> it's like when your first uh, Priceline bid gets accepted, you're like, no. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, ah, like next time, you know. <laughs> but then, you know, a lot of brands come back and they say, okay, well, you know, that's too much. And then I'll usually just say, okay, well, you know, what's your budget? Just like, let me know what your budget is. And I'll tell you the different things that I might be able to do under that budget. Yeah. Interesting. So six years into this, a little over 20,000 Instagram followers, 200,000 on YouTube, that's become a serious channel for you. Do you find most of these requests are now coming to you or in the early days when you first, you know, the light bulb went off that, Hey, this sponsored content, this opportunity to work with brands directly could be a pretty serious revenue stream. Were you proactively pitching the brands that you liked or was it mostly inbound? It's it's like 100% inbound. Like I don't think I've ever actually pitched a brand. That's a nice place to be in. Yeah, it is. And, and I think this is the case with most other people, at least in, at least in this niche. I'll probably get 10 to 20 emails a day. Granted, most of them are brands that I either wouldn't work with or that don't have a budget or not a good fit for some reason. But 
there's enough incoming that you can sort of pick and choose. So yeah, that, that's been nice. And then another thing that you can do is you can have an agency or like a individual manager that kind of manages these brand relationships for you. So I've done that in the past. I kind of like doing it myself a little bit, but if you don't want to deal with like the administration, like the emails and the contracts and the payment, there are plenty of agencies and managers that will handle this part of your business for you. Okay. Yeah, I've got people for that. I like it. Tell me about the YouTube things. This has obviously become a serious focus. In addition to the blog, did you start the channel from the early days or has it been a newer edition? It's a newer edition compared to the blog. I, I think I started it in, I want to say 2015, but like really didn't take it seriously until 2017. Part of the reason is because I got some more space to work with, like an actual studio space that was kind of set up for shooting. So I didn't have to like set up and break down every time. And yeah, YouTube is just, it's such a big, it's like the second biggest search engine now. And it's such a big platform. And I think if your content like mine is, is inherently visual, like the subject matter is visual, it just makes sense to be on YouTube. So yeah, I've really been putting a lot of effort into that over the last like year and a half, two years. Thankfully, I've, you know, I've seen, seen a little bit of growth. So yeah, a little bit is, be, is being modest, pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> for those videos, were you taking content from the blog and, okay, I can create a video version for this and I can embed the video, or is it completely new content? So a lot of it is new content. I did try to take like the top 50 posts from the blog and, and kind of go down the list and say, okay, does this make sense for video? And if so, I'd make a video, but... I found that, and th this is something I still struggle with. Like, I, I know some sites, like, they basically duplicate everything. So, everything's syndicated on the blog and YouTube. For me, I try to choose subjects that would make sense in article and video format, but sometimes I don't think it does. So, some stuff that'll do well on YouTube doesn't really make sense for the blog. And some stuff that's like really good as an article, like maybe it's like evergreen, like SEO content, wouldn't really do. It'd just be like boring on YouTube. Kind of have to pick and choose. Yeah, this is something I'm going through at the moment as well. Going through the library archive of content and figuring out, is this YouTubeable? Is this repurposable in some way? Even if it's just, you know, pulling out pieces of it for a little five to 10 minute video, but it's an undertaking. And I see what you mean about you got to have the studio set up to make it easy. There's a whole system and, and a process to it. So I'm very impressed with what you've built over there for the calls to action in those videos, what have you found most effective? I've found that the YouTube audience is like its own thing. You can definitely get your YouTube audience over to your Instagram because it's they're both just these like, they're very complimentary, like they're both visual. And I found that people who follow on YouTube also want to follow on Instagram and vice versa. But I have not been able to get the YouTube audience over to the website or on the email list or anything like that. So if any of you guys have tips for that, let me know. But I don't really include calls to actions like download an ebook or like anything like that in my videos because I just want people to watch the videos and then watch more of them, you know? So I, I kind of treat that as like its own little environment. And I'm trying to build that because it's valuable in and of itself. I don't I don't necessarily need those people to move over to the website. Okay. You mentioned the email list. Has that been a big piece of the puzzle for you? It has, I think it used to be more important. I've got about 25,000 people on the email list right now. And I've seen open rates and click rates go down a little bit over the past couple of years. And I think that this probably isn't the case for everybody. Like I know a lot of people, email is still really important for their business. For me, it's not as important as it used to be. And I think part of the reason is because I'm really only using it for traffic. Like when I send an email, I'm just trying to get traffic to the website. I'm not selling a product or anything like that. So yeah, it's it's been less important than it used to be, but I, I still think there's a lot of potential there. I probably just haven't really found it yet. Well, I imagine those 25,000 people are compelling to potential brand partners too. It's like, hey, you know, we'll, we'll do a video and we'll send out an email about the video to our 25,000 people. Yeah, it's definitely it's another platform you can use for brand partnerships. It's also a good way to get like a, an initial boost of traffic to a video or to any piece of content. And, you know, like YouTube really likes to see a lot of traffic, a lot of views when you first publish a video. So it's useful for that. It's it's good for affiliate marketing because you can include affiliate links and emails. 
But yeah, I, I think I think it could. I think my my email list is probably underutilized because these days, when anybody, if you sign up for an email list, like you're you really want to be on it because we all get too much email, and I think people are finding other ways to follow you, you know, on Instagram and on YouTube and stuff, and that's why maybe not as many people are choosing to follow via email. Yeah, it's interesting you're you're seeing that. I'm probably seeing something similar where the email list is kind of plateaued over the last year or so and because I'm actively pruning people off who aren't engaging with the content and on the other side getting less aggressive with trying to build subscribers like creating more show notes on the actual page instead of putting those behind an opt-in killing some of the pop-ups and opt-in offers on the site just trying to make a better user experience on that front but I'm curious where email goes because it's like I agree. The inbox is a constant battle for for a lot of people. And like that adversarial relationship, still a great place to reach people one-on-one, but it's like people look at it as an item to check off their to-do list, not like, oh, you got mail. You know, it's not an exciting thing anymore. Yeah, I actually just met Nathan Barry at a conference a few weeks ago, and I've been using ConvertKit for, for a long time now. And just looking at like the growth of that company, like it's obvious that email is still huge. Right. It's still a necessary part of your business, but but yeah, I'm kind of with you. I killed like the the pop ups on my site, and obviously, I still have like opt in forms and free downloads and stuff. But I'm just kind of not being super aggressive about it anymore, and it's sort of more of a passive thing. Like if people want to sign up, they can sign up, and I'll I'm still going to send you an email once a week. But it's not something I'm like really really relying on. Yeah, and hopefully, you end up with by making it more self selective in that way, you end up with people who are more into your stuff, who are excited to read it. Yeah, Brock. At what point did you feel comfortable becoming a full-time, a full-time blogger, a full-time influencer? <laughs> I mean, can I just say, like, I, I'm ready for the term influencer just to not be a thing anymore. <laughs> it's like the worst way to describe it. But yeah, anyway, good question. Um, I'm, I'm happy you said that, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's, oh, it's, it's, it's depending on who I'm talking to, like how old they are. Like people say, what do you do? You know, sometimes they'll say blogger or YouTuber, or, but I, I really see what, what I do and, and I think what what people like us do is a digital media publisher. Like I see myself as like a media company focusing on different platforms, but that's what I'm good at is like publishing content on the web that helps people. But I went full-time just about three years ago now. Actually, yeah, three years ago. And it coincided with a move from Washington, D.C. to Tucson, Arizona. My now wife and I, we both quit our jobs and we moved out here. And we actually both... She went full-time with her graphic design, illustration, freelance career, and then I went full-time with Modest Man. I'd say at the time, revenue from my business was probably about 6000 a month, which wouldn't have been enough in D.C., but it was enough in Tucson. So it kind of coincided with that move. Playing the little location independence geo-arbitrage game uh, a little bit. Yeah, go, go somewhere where it's uh, cheaper to live and better weather. Totally. It's, it's a good move, man. Okay. <laughs> Tell me about your time commitment and maybe the process for creating content today. Because you've got the blog, which is still updated pretty regularly, as far as I can tell. The YouTube stuff, like we mentioned. The social stuff on Instagram, like we mentioned. And also this separate podcast that feeds into this as well. There's a lot of content to create. That's probably my biggest struggle right now and something I'm really trying to get better at this year is just like how to spend time and like what to focus on. So there's there's two things that I'm trying to do to kind of help with that. One is like really cultivating the writing habit. You know, I used to write all the time when I first started blogging. And I'm sure like maybe you've experienced or, or some of your listeners have like, I got really burnt out on writing. And for a while, I kind of like resented it. Like I didn't want to write. I was like, why do I have to do this? <laughs> you know, I've been doing this for years. But I think what what I kind of realized, like especially last year, was no matter what what I do, even if I stop doing Modest Man one day, or even if I you know become a millionaire, like I'm a writer and writing is part of my life. So whether it's a personal journal or a blog post for Modest Man or a guest post or a video script, something always has to be written. And so what I'm doing this year is I established like such an easy goal that like it's almost impossible not to do. So I basically say every day. I'm going to write for at least 20 minutes. I'm going to set a timer for 20 minutes and write. I usually do it twice, so it usually ends up being 40 minutes, and I can get about 800 to 1,000 words out. Doing that 
has really helped me keep like the content pipeline filled. It, it's getting the raw material out. Do you have a hard time coming up with what to write about? I imagine after doing this for six years, I've covered this from every angle possible. Just curious if you're feeling like you've said everything that there is to say about this topic. I've never felt like that, actually. There's just so much to cover. And there are always questions coming in. I see what other sites are doing with video, you know, video scripts. There's just the list of content is just endless. And I have like all these Evernote lists with content. And so, yeah, I I never sit down and have to spend time thinking of what to write about. (laughs) Like the blinking cursor, like, oh, what should I do today? It's like there's, so you have a system, it sounds like with Evernote and these incoming reader questions on what to cover next. Yeah, I mean, if I see the same question come up two or three times in YouTube comments, that's a good topic. Okay. One of the toughest parts about starting and growing your business is figuring out how to build relationships. As you know, people are more likely to buy from and do business with people they know, like, and trust. But when it comes to networking, where do you start? And what if you're more introverted like me? What if you're more wallflower than social butterfly? Well, there's a recent episode of a great podcast called This is Small Business that walks you through how to figure this stuff out. The episode is called How Networking Can Help You Build and Grow Your Business and Inside You'll learn practical tips on how to build business relationships that don't feel so transactional. A couple parts I liked in particular were how to break into those uh, tight little circles at networking events where you're kind of standing around awkwardly on the outside, and then what you should say in a follow-up email to somebody that you meet there. This is Small Business answers a ton of these questions that all entrepreneurs have, like how to use social media to grow your business, how to find your ideal price point, how to know when you're ready to launch your product, and tons more. So give it a follow. This is Small Business, an original podcast from Amazon, wherever you listen to podcasts. Do you feel the pressure, and this is something maybe I'm I'm projecting a little bit, to create like your top 50 blogs every man should read? That type of epic list pillar content where you know it's going to take 20, 30 hours or more to compile and format and do all this stuff. Like I'm never going to have a 30 hour block of time to get that done. Here's <laughs> how you, how you combat that or, or, or what your process looks like for creating something that's compelling enough to rank well, but still being motivated to start it. Yeah, that's, that's a great question, man. I, I do struggle with that a little bit because I, I want, I want my site to be filled with that kind of content, just like the epic, in-depth, super helpful content. And I think for some topics, you do have to do that, even if it takes a while because it's just so competitive. And even 10 of those, even if you have 10 of those on your site, that can be a game changer. I mean, that could, that could fuel your business for years. But I don't, I don't put that pressure on to do that every time. I mean, I kind of want to, maybe that's one out of 10 articles or something. And, and most of them are, they have to hit a certain standard, like over a thousand words. It's got to have good original images, has to be on-page SEO optimized. But no, I, I don't, I don't set out to create, you know, the ultimate guide every time. <laughs> you using anything on the SEO front for keyword research or to to kind of turn those reader and viewer questions into something that people are typing in? I still just use the Google Keyword Planner for really basic keyword research, just like validate an idea or or maybe like see how I should phrase a title. But yeah, I'm I'm, I'm not using any crazy tools. I do want to do at one point like a site audit. And I'll probably have to use like SEM Rush or something for that, but but no, I, I just use Google. Yeah, I've been obsessed with Ahrefs lately for the keyword volume, competitiveness, see what other sites are ranking for. It's like a crazy cool piece of software. And is that like a monthly subscription? Yeah, similar to SEM Rush. I think similarly priced too. Okay, I'll check that out. What kind of time are you putting into the site today? And I and I guess I use the site broadly because you've got all these other media channels as well. I put in probably about 30 hours a week, I would say, 20 to 30 hours a week, depending on the week. I don't know if that's like like 30 hours of like head down working, <laughs> you know? But I mean, my day looks like, you know, I have like a pretty slow morning routine and then I go to the my office studio, which is about 10 minutes from my house. I try to get there before 9.30, 10 a.m. I have a lot of energy like around that time. So, so I work through lunch, maybe to like two or three and then I always just hit this slump <laughs> and I go to the gym and then I'll usually put in maybe two or three more hours in the evening. Oh, okay. Okay. Any 
pillar components of the morning routine that have been game changers for you? Well, I've, I've been doing this year for the past maybe three months, my version of like bullet journaling, which is to say like a really simple, like dumbed down version of it, <laughs> but it's been really good. So basically like just kind of like a little bit of light journaling and then looking at my to-do list from the previous day, making a new to-do list, thinking about, you know, what is like, what's like the one or two things that like has to happen today. The writing is always one of them. And then if, if it's a, I usually work out every other day. So if, if it's a workout day, the workout is also, I consider a necessary component of the day. If I get those two things done and maybe there's like one more finishing a video or something, I consider that a pretty good day. Yeah. There's, there's never a dull moment. There's always going to be more stuff to do. So I'm curious, what's next for the modest man? What's got you excited these days? Well, I'm still really excited about video and we'll be putting a lot of effort into video this year. Passing um, 200,000 subscribers is really cool on YouTube. I'd love to get that channel bigger, continue to grow Instagram. I think those are like just both really important platforms for my subject matter, for like the world of men's style. And then I'm wanting to kind of like revitalize the blog a little bit because I definitely sort of uh, neglected it while I was focusing so much on video. To that end, I'm currently building out like a team of contributors. So people that can like do product reviews and, and write articles take some of the pressure off me for creating and publishing content on the website. I still think websites are like so important and like they're not going anywhere. So I want to give it the attention it deserves. Yeah. I imagine as new products come out, if you can be among the first to write a really in-depth review, you can have a pretty good traffic spike from that. Totally. Yeah. And, and that's, it's, it's great for affiliate revenue and there are so many cool new companies in, in the men's fashion world a lot of like really cool direct consumer brands. And I get emails from these brands and the effort it takes to to receive a product, to go back and forth with the brand, get a product, test it out, and then write a review with with photos. It's so much effort. And so if I can offload that process to someone who's also passionate about this subject and who wants to get some free products and get paid for their work in exchange for putting together a review. I'm happy to do that. So, so kind of my, my goal this year is to have like a handful of those people who, who I can offload that process on. Yeah, very cool. Let's you focus on the video stuff. And I imagine you've seen as other people that we've talked to, YouTube is very much an exponential growth curve. Like it's a struggle. It's a battle for those first thousand people. But then at the same time it took to get those first thousand is now you're 10,000. And then the shortcut, the next uh, bump to 20,000, 50,000. Have you seen the same thing in the subscriber growth? Oh yeah, I mean it's YouTube is wild right now. Like and on one hand, like it's more competitive, I guess, than it's ever been. But on the other hand, you can just take off and you see these new channels go from zero to thirty thousand subscribers in a month. I've seen my channel just have these like weird spikes. And maybe it's one video takes off, maybe something else just happened like under the radar, like with the algorithm. But if you're just consistent with it and, and your content is good, you're gonna see these spikes and I remember for me, it was like going from like 15,000 subscribers to like 50,000 and 50 to 100 like really quickly just because I got these kind of waves. So I'm excited for more of that. Not like I try not to be like too attached to how a video does or like checking Social Blade every day to see like how many subscribers I'm getting because it's really hard not to. But it's also it's, it's exciting to see growth on that platform. What's your best performing video if somebody wants to check it out? I think the current best one is called How to Keep Your Shirt Tucked In. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> the basics. <laughs> All right, we'll link it up for you in the show notes. It'll be sidehustlenation.com slash Brock. Thank you so much for uh, joining me. Let's wrap this thing up with your number one tip for Side Hustle Nation. Oh man, pressure. <laughs> I would say think about how you want to spend your time. First of all, you know, don't just think about money or, or the outcome. Think about how you actually want to spend your time each day. And then... Try to identify like one thing that will get you closer to to your goals. Like for me, it's that 20-minute writing habit. And do that thing first thing in the morning every day. I've heard people describe it as like the 1%, 1% better every day or, or Kaizen or this idea of being just like a little bit better, a little bit closer every day. So try to try to find that one thing and then like really make it a priority. Yeah. And and for you, you've identified that as writing. And I think that's really powerful to know what that is. Identify that one thing that gets you closer to your goals and make it a priority. Tackle that thing first thing before diving into somebody else's agenda. It's powerful 
stuff. Brock, thank you again for joining me. Check him out at themodestman.com and we'll catch up with you soon. This edition of the Side Hustle Show is brought to you by FreshBooks.com. And I've got another phone-in testimonial for you this week. This is Miranda Marquit from PlantingMoneySeeds.com and Adulting.tv. I use FreshBooks and I have been using FreshBooks for several years now. And I love FreshBooks because it gives me the chance to quickly and easily invoice clients and get paid. There are so many great features on FreshBooks from recurring invoices to templates to the fact that I can easily log in and see my dashboard and see who has paid and who needs a reminder to pay me. So FreshBooks is a great way to get paid. The fees are pretty low. And if you choose the e-check option, you can also get a discount on your PayPal fees. So not only does FreshBooks help me get paid faster, it also ensures I save money. Visit freshbooks.com slash side hustle to start your 30-day free trial today. That's freshbooks.com slash side hustle and enter the side hustle show in the how did you hear about us section. This edition of the Side Hustle Show is sponsored by Squarespace. Squarespace is the all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. That means whether you're just starting out or your side hustle is already growing like crazy, Squarespace takes all things website-related and makes them easy. I want to highlight a few Squarespace features for you. One I knew about and a couple I didn't. First off, where Squarespace really shines is this huge library of professional website templates. That means you're not starting from scratch because they've got designs for every category and use case that you can customize to fit your unique needs so your business stands out online. That was the thing I knew about. Second one was new to me, and that's their online store functionality. Whether you're selling physical or digital products or a service, Squarespace has got the tools you need to start selling online. And third is their email campaigns. They make it easy to collect email subscribers from your site and drive engagement and sales through Squarespace email campaigns, and you can track the results of every send with built-in analytics. So head on over to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, go to squarespace.com slash side hustle to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash side hustle. All right. My top three takeaways from this call with Brock. Number one is to add a qualifier. So how this works is just how Brock described it. Broad topic like fashion or style plus four short men. In my case, entrepreneurship or how to start a business plus on the side makes it super obvious who you serve, makes it easier to get guest posts, makes it less competitive to get traffic and attention. Broad topic plus a qualifier. Travel for families with young kids. Fitness for diabetics. Barbecue for vegans. I don't know if that would be a thing. I think it works in online business like Brock's. It works in service businesses and it works in product businesses. So I really liked that bit about niching down at a qualifier. Takeaway number two is it's a slog. Brock put in his reps to build this thing up before the ad income, before the affiliate income was anything serious, before the brands started reaching out. Cultivate the habit. In his case, it was writing. He was working 20 to 30 hours a week on The Modest Man when it was still a side hustle because it was fun. It was rewarding. He could see where it was going. The hourly rate from that time at the beginning, not that great, but he was building something that could scale. And interestingly, The Modest Man and Side Hustle Nation started around the same time in 2013, but neither venture was our first attempt at online business, which I think goes to show the importance of getting started, learning as you go, recognizing that choosing what's next doesn't mean choosing what's forever. The people that I met when I first started the blog and podcast, the people who are still doing this stuff, it's been really interesting to watch the pivots and evolutions over that time. It's a marathon, but you probably aren't going to be able to see the finish line from the starting line. And that's okay. That's normal. And takeaway number three is to focus where the audience already is. For Brock's market, YouTube and Instagram were where he saw growth. So we focused there. And it makes sense. It's a visual niche. For your project, it might be LinkedIn or Pinterest or just plain old Google. What I would probably caution against though, especially early on, is trying to be everywhere. I think that's a recipe for burnout. Learn one platform at a time and then branch out as it makes sense. 
For me, it was the podcast. I thought of myself as a writer first, and I had some lucky hits on the blog early on in terms of search traffic, but it was the podcast that took off, and it took years, and I'm still learning and still working on this, to get better at SEO for the website itself. Focus where the audience is. Focus where you're seeing traction, where you're seeing growth. Once again, notes and links for this episode, plus the free downloadable PDF highlight reel with all of Brock's top tips from the call are at sidehustlenation.com slash Brock. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, let's go out there and make something happen. And I'll catch you in the next edition of the Side Hustle Show, where you'll meet the college dropout whose side hustle inspiration struck in the McDonald's drive-thru. And he's since turned that business into a multi-nine-figure operation. Crazy story. Can't wait to share it with you. Hit the subscribe button in your podcast player app to make sure you don't miss it. And I'll see you then. Hustle on. Is there a more dreaded question than what's for dinner? Meal planning and eating well to hit your nutrition goals doesn't have to be complicated. Our sponsor, Factor, makes it easy by sending delicious, ready-to-eat, chef-crafted, dietitian-approved meals right to your door. Every week, you've got over 35 different menu options to choose from, including keto, calorie-smart, vegan and veggie options, and more. Some personal favorites of ours so far have been the garlic mushroom chicken thighs and the Indian butter tofu. These are restaurant-quality meals ready in just two minutes. No prep, no mess. It's the perfect easy button solution for busy side hustlers and couples. And it's not just dinner either. Factor has nutrient-packed snacks, smoothies, breakfasts, and more. And hey, plans change, which is why you can scale up or down your meals or pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. Head to factormeals.com slash sidehustle50 and use code sidehustle50 to get 50% off your first box and two free wellness shots per box while your subscription is active. That's code sidehustle50 at factormeals.com slash sidehustle50 to get 50% off your first box and two free wellness shots per box while subscription is active. Big thanks to Factor for sponsoring the show.